Welcome to USURF Spotlight, a new series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we discuss major topics and issues in the news and explore how those issues are impacting religious freedom around the globe. Here is USURF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, leading this week's discussion. Welcome to USURF Spotlight. Today, we're gonna to talk about the situation in Iran, and in particular, the status of religious minorities and how, if at all, the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted conditions on the ground. We're also gonna talk about why accountability for decades of abuse by the Iranian government is so important. But let me start by saying that it's now been more than four decades that the Iranian government, the only truly theocratic regime in the world, has been curtailing the rights of its people in all facets of life. The government enforces a unique ideology based on its narrow interpretation of the Jafari school of Shia Islam. No citizen in Iran is immune from persecution and discrimination if you publicly espouse an alternative or counter view to the regime's ideology. One segment of society that feels the brunt of the heavy-handed nature of the regime are the religious minority communities, such as Baha'is, Christians, Sufis, Sunnis, atheists, and others. We're fortunate today to have with us USURF supervisory policy analysts and our Iran and Gulf country specialist, Scott Wiener, to discuss these issues in more detail. Welcome, Scott. Hi, Dwight. Great to be speaking with you. So tell me, how would you characterize the current status of Iran's religious minorities, and what are some of the significant trends that have emerged over the past year or so? Sure. Well, good morning, Dwight. Um, unfortunately, since December of 2017, when widespread protest activity began in Iran, we've seen an uptick in persecution against different religious minorities in Iran. That's been sustained since then for a period of almost two years. So to run quickly through some of the major groups that are facing that persecution, we've seen the government go after members of the Baha'i community, which the government considers a deviant sect of Islam. It's harassed members, it's shut down businesses, it's arrested people, and it's imposed lengthy prison sentences. Um, in addition, the Christian community has also faced persecution, including mass arrests right before Christmas, and the persecution of leaders of the community, including Pastor Victor Bet Tamraz, who was forced to flee the country with his family in the past couple of months as a result of a lost appeal against a lengthy prison sentence. We've seen members of the Sunni community persecuted as well, including seven who just had a death sentence reaffirmed. Four of them were just moved from one prison to another, which we think is a sign that those executions are imminent. And members of the Sufi community, the Muslim mystic community in Iran, specifically the Gunbadi Sufis, have also faced persecution. Their uh, spiritual leader, we have evidence suggest, uh, suggesting that uh, the Iranian government was complicit in his untimely death and that they're also interfering in the process of appointing a successor. Well, how about more recently, though, this year, uh, since the COVID uh, pandemic has emerged, I mean, wasn't Iran one of the early countries to have a significant number of uh, cases proliferate? And has that uh, situation impacted uh, religious freedom on the ground? 
Absolutely, yeah. So Iran has been pretty hard hit by COVID. They've had about 540,000 cases and about 31,000 deaths. So this is a country of around 84 million people. Um, so those numbers are are pretty concerning. And uh, there's evidence that the government has not taken adequate precautions to protect the public from the threat of COVID-19. Um, as we know, in prisons, there's an added risk because the virus can be transmitted in those enclosed spaces. And we're particularly concerned about prisoners of conscience who are in prison not for having hurt anybody or who don't pose any danger to the public, but who are there only because of their ideas. And these include people like the lawyer Nasrin Sautudeh, who declared a hunger strike a few weeks ago in protest of the inadequate protections that the government has put in prisons to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Her condition got so bad she was moved to a hospital, um, but then she was forcibly moved back to the notorious uh, Evin prison in Tehran um, without adequate medical care. She was just moved again within the past few days to Karchak prison to another prison, um, but she's really in a very serious condition. So we're really concerned about her, um, as well as other people in uh, in prison, including members of the uh, Sufi community who were imprisoned. They've been moved to wards where cases of COVID-19 have been confirmed. So at the very least, this shows a high level of negligence on the part of the government of Iran vis-a-vis prisoners of conscience, who again, are not posing any danger to society, but are in prison because of their ideas and because of the religious beliefs they hold that are protected under international law. Yeah, thanks for that. You, you mentioned uh, human rights defender Nasrin Sotoudeh and her situation. We all know that uh, you know no one is immune, as, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, including the majority population, the, the Shia majority. If you're a dissident, uh, obviously uh, there have been uh, ayatollahs and so on that have been targeted over the years and so on. But what about other groups in society that are impacted by the application of uh, Iran's unique form of Shia Islam uh, through their constitution, their penal code? I'm thinking groups like, uh, you know, women's rights activists or members of the LGBTI community. How has the application of uh, Iranian law particularly impacted these groups? And and has this uh, actually worsened or what can you tell us? Absolutely. I mean, that's a really great point. We think about religious freedom, not only as it affects different religious minorities in a country, but also the way governments use religion as a pretext for denying rights. So we absolutely see that in the Iranian case. So after the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran, it became mandatory for women to cover their hair, to wear hijab, um, and to do so on a religious basis. So there were protests even back in the early 80s against this, but those protests have continued. And many of uh, the women who have taken off their hijab as a form of protest have been arrested and thrown in prison. So these are people who are peaceful, they're exercising their freedom of religion and belief, and for doing so, they're being thrown in jail by the government of Iran. Um, in terms of the LGBTI community, Iran is one of a handful of countries where not only is being gay punishable by death, but it's actually carried out executions against members of the gay community um, and continues to persecute other members of the LGBTI community as well. And again, this is on a religious basis. So what that means is that women, members of the LGBTI community, um, people who are non-believers or non-theists, 
these are people who don't agree with the government's interpretation of religion. And for not doing that, they're persecuted, thrown in prison and executed, even though their right to believe something different is again, enshrined within international law. Yeah, and I mean, just following up on that, I mean, I think this system as we've seen, I mean, obviously there's been protests that are unrelated to the, the, the plight of religious minorities in a way, but haven't they used the pretext of citizens uh, rising up to, to speak out for their rights in recent years and even as early as, I mean, as recent as late last year, and then they've used that propaganda uh, to target religious minorities like Baha'is, like those who are, like you said, have different views. Um, what can you tell us about how the regime has used the protests as a, as a pretext to also crack down on some of these vulnerable populations? So back in 2009, after an election where the outcome was suspect, without going into too much detail, there were widespread protests um, that were united under the idea of sort of the green movement. And Iran's government responded with violence to these protests. There were really brutal crackdowns and a number of arrests. The effects of those protests are still very present in uh, Iran today. But one of the lessons that the Iranian government learned is that that kind of explicit crackdown draws the kind of international attention that, um, that creates difficulty for the government. So in this current round of protests, which began again in December of 2017, the government has been a bit more subtle. We haven't seen the same kind of brutal, widespread, explicit crackdowns, um, but the government has been just as aggressive in using the legal system to try to silence dissidents. So we've seen members Members of uh, religious minority communities be persecuted on national security charges, people who allegedly pose a threat to the government or to the public because they believe something that's slightly different. Now, it's important to remember that within international law, there are certain extremely limited, narrow conceptions uh, for limiting freedom of religion. National security is not one of those exceptions. So it is a violation of international law for any government to claim that on a national security basis, they're limiting freedom of religion. So what Iran is doing, arresting minorities and charging them with national security crimes because their beliefs are different um, is inconsistent with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the ICCPR. Let me turn to, to another angle I think that we uh, you know, have spent some attention on over the years, and that's related to uh, targeted sanctions. Uh, as you well know, uh, Yusuf released a uh, report in August that we uh, published together about a, a decade of human rights and religious freedom sanctions by the U.S. government imposing uh, travel bans and asset freezes on Iranian officials and entities uh, for egregious violations. So tell us, why does USERF support these kinds of specific targeted sanctions? And what would you consider the long-term goal of this kind of naming and shaming and documenting of these officials' abuses? What's the end goal here? So the end goal is to provide accountability for specific high-level government officials who are directly complicit in systematic, ongoing, and egregious human rights violations. So earlier this year, for example, the State Department and the Treasury sanctioned Mohammad Golpayarani. This is a man who had engineered in its totality the systematic persecution of the Baha'i minority in Iran. So there are a number of 
kinds of sanctions that can be imposed, both in terms of the legal authorities that the U.S. government has, and also the general framework under which they're imposed. So there are sanctions for human rights, sanctions relating to terrorism, sanctions related to Iran's nuclear program. USERF specifically looks at uh, targeted sanctions that impact individuals who themselves are directly complicit in human rights uh, violations, specifically religious freedom violations. Um, and so that looks like asset freezes and also visa bans so that they can't travel to the United States. Um, so with regards to some of these broader sanctions, there's a, a larger debate here in Washington about those sanctions. USERF doesn't really take a position on them because they don't relate to religious freedom. Um, but specifically to the, the sanctions that we do advocate for, we have seen evidence that the threat of sanctions can actually be a deterrent for some high to medium level officials, that if they understand that the U.S. government is watching what they're doing, that this affects their behavior, and it may not lead them to, for example, free uh, a persecuted member of a minority faith, but they might shorten a prison sentence or they might hold off imposing a death penalty if they're a judge, for example. So we have seen some evidence that the threat of sanctions is an effective way to protect um, individual members of religious minority communities. And it also documents what we all know, which is that the government of Iran is absolutely complicit in systematic ongoing and egregious violations of religious freedom, which is one of the reasons that USERF has consistently recommended that the State Department adopt it as a country of particular concern under the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998 and why they've done so consistently. You raise an important point, obviously, from the U.S. context, but I wanted to just highlight the fact that, you know, the U.N. General Assembly, you know, annually passes a resolution condemning human rights uh, violations in Iran. And uh, in particular, it, it highlights uh, violations against religious minorities. And just the report last month issued by the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, on human rights in Iran, where he expressed grave concern over ongoing violations, including against ethnic and religious minorities. So there's not a lack of the documentation and a series of NGOs have, have been doing that uh, for, for a few decades now. Um, but what, what, would, what can you tell me in terms of what else uh, can the US government uh, do here? There's a lot of the documentation and condemnation, which we've, we've explained is vital for accountability, wherever that and whenever that might happen. But what else can be done as, as far as the US context or even uh, at the international level? So within the US, as we've just talked about, keeping the issue salient is really important. And so it's important that the administration and Congress continue to hold hearings and keep this issue in the public spotlight. It's one a lot of Americans care about, um, but it's one that having more information about can only help. Um, beyond some of those activities, the U.S. Uh, can also continue to work with international partners and allies, members of the newly created International Religious Freedom Alliance. There's international concern about the status of religious minorities in Iran and communities that are affected by the government's uh, imposition of one religious view on all citizens. So um, we've had conversations kind of across the board, and we know the State Department has as well. Um, the International Religious Freedom Ministerial, which is now happening for the third time uh, in Poland later this year is a great opportunity for the US to lead an international coalition of partners and allies and friends 
who share our concerns about the status of these persecuted minorities. Another thing that the US Congress can do is pass and the administration can implement the Lautenberg Amendment. So this is an amendment which is passed every single year with bipartisan support that creates a special category of resettlement for persecuted religious minorities in Iran um, who are seeking refugee status in the United States. So these are um, men and women and children who come to Vienna, Austria. It's done in coordination with the government of Austria. They're vetted by uh, the United States, by the Department of Homeland Security, the intelligence community, et cetera. And then they're approved for resettlement here in the United States. Now, in general, throughout this program, the acceptance rate has been about 100%, virtually 100% for um, these persecuted minorities. Over the past few years, we've seen that the program has stalled, that uh, members who've been approved have not been resettled in the United States. And currently, there are less than 80 people who are stuck in Vienna who have been approved by our intelligence community, by Homeland Security, by the US government to be resettled, um, but they haven't been brought over. So because of this uh, new ministerial, which will be virtual this year because of COVID, but it's taking place in uh, Poland, ahead of this ministerial, it's a great opportunity for the Trump administration to demonstrate leadership and get an easy win by bringing these refugees over uh, into the United States um, on this amendment, which has bipartisan support and is fairly non-controversial. But what a great way to not just talk about the importance of religious freedom, but to actually enact it and show through our actions that the United States will continue to be a voice for religious minorities in Iran who don't have a voice. And we'll have to leave it right uh, here. I want to thank uh, USERF Supervisory Analyst Scott Weiner for his insights today. And you can find our report on Iranian government officials sanctioned for violating religious freedom on our website at www.usurf.gov. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight.